Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. Today is episode 40, User Experience and Developer Tooling with Randall Kotnick. And I'm here uh, once again with my good friend, John Papa. John Papa, what's new with you? What's new? Uh, So many things. It's the middle of summer and I'm getting ready to tune out of work for a little while. So to me, what's new is I'm going to turn off the computer really soon and just not pay attention to the internet. <laughs> How are you going to bring that off? That is that is so hard. It's going to be, but at least for the first day or two. But uh, I like to unplug. I like to leave my laptop home and basically just not even turn on the Wi-Fi on my phones when I go away. Well, actually, I did that too myself recently. I just got back from performing a wedding in Oregon last week. And during that entire time, I worked for exactly one hour. And other than that, the laptop stayed nice. in the bag. That's pretty cool. And some people may not know this. I imagine a lot of people don't know this, but you perform weddings. Well, I, I do. It's, the, it's, uh, it's not my, uh, fortunately, it is not my day job. <laughs> but uh, for, for, for select uh, folks with whom I have, in this case, it was my goddaughter uh, with whom I have a, a relationship that uh, matters. Uh, it is a thrill. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life um, is because it really refocuses me on the things that matter in life. That's great. Uh, and I build, I re- regenerate, recharge my relationships with, with people, mostly non-tech people, uh, actually in this case, all non-tech people. And it's some, it's like, Hey, you know what? There are other kinds of people in this world than the ones we're talking to uh, much of our day. And then the things that we talk about are different. So anyway, I went on too long. Uh, let's get to our guest. Yeah. Today's guest is Randall Kotnick. Did I say your name right, Randall? You nailed it. All right. Nailed it. Just like that show on Netflix. Randall's career can be politely summed as interesting. He's working at tiny startups to Netflix to teaching introductory programming at a boot camp. And Randall wrote a book on RxJS, which didn't impress his cats very much. (laughs) Nice bio, Randall. So welcome to the show. Awesome. It's great to be on. So we met through the internet, which uh, is a pretty common thing these days uh, for a lot of people that we, we talk to on the show and either conferences, internet, or just random gatherings. Um, or you haven't performed the wedding for anybody on our show, have you? Not yet, John. If you would like to renew, if you would like to renew your vows, I would love to, to, to uh, participate in that. Maybe we could do that on a future show. Me and my wife could oh, get on renew our so vows. That would be so cool. It might be the least listened to show an episode we have. Yeah, but it would have, a, it would, at least the two of us would hear it. <laughs> so, Randall, we had brought you on the show for a couple of things. We talked through the internet, and you had brought the topic of RxJS and also user experience and developer tooling. Tell us, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's it's a really weird niche that I really uh, stumbled into um, where uh, starting off my career, like, what do you do? Like, programming, and it's just this massive world where there's so many different things you can do with your life. And I was at a bunch of small startups where really it was just 
dive into whatever's needed. And um, a couple startups along, I uh, ended up at a startup that was building tooling for developers. And really the problem there was that we were building powerful tools that weren't usable. And no one wanted to use them. Surprise, surprise. It was hard to get started. It was hard to actually, like, change anything. Um, once you did, it was great. But uh, other than that, and so I started diving into, like, all right, how do you make something useful rather than, like, how do you make something scalable? How do you make something, you know, from scratch? It was much more like, how do I make things that people want to build? And from there, I went to another startup and ended up joining uh, and leading a team building uh, internal uh, data pipeline. Um, that's where I first got my first taste of RxJS. Uh, and from then on, really, my entire career um, has been building internal tooling for other developers. I really like it. It's a, a niche that's very fulfilling for me because I really get to see my work in action. Um, I make something that you know makes everyone around me their their day better, um, which is something I really enjoy. So, what kinds of things? Uh, give me an example of one of the things you're most proud of building for developer tooling. Sure. Um, I think the, the my my favorite thing of all time uh, was when I started at Netflix and I was working on the uh, alerting team because you know it's important. You know, Netflix getting Netflix running and streaming and fast is good, but if Netflix is down, that's very bad. And so we tried to prevent that. And at Netflix, we had built a massive, awesome uh, metrics system, really built specifically for Netflix scale. And it was amazing. You could do the standard deviation of week over week and all sorts of really crazy different combinations. But the problem was it, we had invented our own query language. If you can imagine, if I want to have any alerts uh, or get any metrics about my system, I have to learn an entirely new query language to figure that out. Yeah. Um, because, because as we know, nobody's ever written a query language that was any good before. Mm-hmm. And we're all top flight engineers. So what do we do? We make our own. Hey, look, there's something out there that's 95% the same I want it. Let's go create a new one. I've done, I've done that before. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm not sneering at others. I, I'm no. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I've done it many times. And sometimes I regretted it. And sometimes, honestly, I was like, you know, it was still worth the 5% that wasn't there was still worth me doing. Well, and know? every once in a while, it becomes something great. Like Angular JS was that way and React was that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, almost all of the great things that we've ever had was somebody following that instinct, but it's the one, that's the 1% case. Yeah. Uh, all right. Sorry, Randall. We, you, yeah. you, you obviously put salt in a familiar wound. Yeah. I'm sure that's, that's a lesson I've learned many times over is, is uh, most of the time just use what's on the shelf. And I say that as someone who has tried to build their own front-end framework, uh, and that did not <laughs> work. But uh, so we had this, this our own unique language, it was just a very powerful language, but a very complex one. Um, just for curiosity, what, it, what was it called? Uh, the Atlas Stack Language. Um, okay. Is this and, something we could find any information about, or yeah, is it all private? Uh, Atlas is, in fact, open source, uh, so oh, okay. you can go dive into that. But... Uh, one of the problems was it was uh, post-fix. So you can imagine, um, you know, instead of saying three plus two, you'd say three, two, plus. So you could add operators onto the end, and it's just not a mind space most engineers are used to working in. Oh, yeah. I used to work in a language that worked that way called one of the oldest languages around called APL. That's usually APL, how I type yeah. words, by the way. I type words with the letters all out of order. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's more aimed at me. <laughs> 
reverse Polish notation. It's a, it, it had a long it has a long pedigree, mm-hmm. and uh, it's great for those of us who master it, but not so great for everybody else. Yeah. So so it was a uh, yeah. Once you sat down and mastered this language, it was hugely powerful. But most of the engineers did not want to sit down and master an entirely new language, uh, and so what I ended up building is I took the I said like, all right, so what's the the top 10 things that tend to break around here and built out uh, alerts for those things and built just kind of a a setup wizard. If you remember the setup wizards from a long time ago that, uh, that ran people through and said, all right, you know, what's your servers? What's, you know, let's figure out some thresholds and just a, a, just a sort of, couple of steps that just set up and uh, you didn't have to write any Atlas stack language at all to get things up and running. And uh, I was pretty proud of it and pushed it out. And the funny story is, you know, do you know how developers are about stickers, right? Oh yeah. And so I thought, well, I've got this new thing that I'm releasing internally. Um, I needed something to, to get people in on it to, you know, convince people to use it. Uh, so I printed off a whole bunch of, you know, I'm an alert wizard stickers, and it's just a, you know, wizard with, with a magical cup of coffee. <laughs> and so I put the announcement out, and just everyone used it. It was incredible. It just, like, so, like ended up being run uh, several hundred times, which doesn't sound that impressive, but, you know, for for internal tool, that's that's huge. Just in the first week or so. And ended up catching... Um, problems before they spiraled out of control, even in that first week, uh, that wouldn't have been caught otherwise. Cause people just like, ah, I kept putting off, you know how it is. You're like, I really should do that. Like writing tests. I really should learn this thing and set up some alerts, but I can do that next week. Um, and a couple things were caught, uh, and some outages, uh, I wouldn't say full outages because Netflix is a very res- resilient system, but, um, yeah, but but all the let's be honest, every major large company has an outage at some point. I mean, it might be small, it might be minor, or it could be big. But you know, the internet is not one hundred percent uptime for everything. Yeah, something is is always broken at any time. Yeah. So that that was really kind of my first like real like proof of concept of this this idea of be building tooling from a focus of how do I make this easy to use rather than how do I make this very powerful or scalable. So this was, that's interesting because we've talked about user experience quite a bit uh, on this show with various people. Uh, one was actually Netflix with Ryan Burgess and mm-hmm. talking about A-B testing and things like that. But that's more from an end user standpoint. This is more for developer user experience uh, is what you were aiming for, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's nice because I am the customer. Uh, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'll admit I'm lazy, so I want things to be easy and understandable. What's your idea of easy? What, in other words, what uh, I'm kind of curious. What what are the criteria you use to 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 say this is this is you, this is what I'm striving for? And how do you keep things? Here's the thing that drives me crazy because um, yeah, I do a little of this too. Is I keep wanting to add features. Yeah. <laughs> and how do I stop myself? Particularly, somebody's always suggesting a feature, and you know, you're kind of like, oh man, that's. That's a good idea. It's just not good enough. How, how do you do that? What's your, what's, your, what's your thought process? Yeah, so I have a couple of just general rules that I've assembled over the years. Um, I think one of them came from uh, an engineer was giving me a ride home uh, in his Tesla, which is an electric car. And in California, you can get stickers that let you drive an electric car on the carpool lane if you're just one person. 
Uh, and he was giving me a ride home after a really long day, uh, lots and lots of meetings for both of us. And he apologized to me. He says, I never got the stickers for my car, so I can't get in the carpool lane to me sitting in the car with him. And uh, this isn't to insult him, just to say, like, even like the smartest engineers out there are, are never going to be 100% smart 100% of the time. And so I think about that a lot when designing, like, how do I make a tool that even in that kind of brain space, I just got out of eight hours of meetings and planning, and now, you know, an alert fired or something's going wrong, um, you're, you're worn out. You know, like how there's a difference between like the, the engineer who's all ready to go and had a good night's sleep and the engineer who just got paged at two in the morning. And so I try to think, how do I make things, make the, the thing that people want to do obvious? And that goes back to, like you say, people always want to add features. People are always having suggestions, always this and that, back and forth. Uh, and what I try to do is kind of, yeah, and, you know, it's like, I don't know, uh, but I, I tend to ignore a lot of that. Because people always want, you know, just solve, and just put a button here that solves all my problems. When I click it, all my problems are solved. And that's not really feasible. But to say, like, what, why do you need this feature? What are you trying to accomplish? And how can I make that easier rather than this specific feature? And taking notes around that, like, okay, I'm getting requests on a regular basis. Let's, what are the common threads? What are the things that people are trying to accomplish, having trouble accomplishing? And, and, and that often leads to some surprising results. So that's kind of like the two things I, I try to design for mm-hmm. is, is find the intent in requests rather than just looking at the requests surface level and design for the engineer who just got paged at two in the morning. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Do you want to spend more time building great applications and less time configuring your tools? Do you want a deeper understanding of the Angular platform? The experts from Narwhal can help. Narwhal is a consulting firm made up of former Angular team members and wonderful web experts who help developers build apps better and faster through their consulting, training, and open-source tools. You may be familiar with NX and Angular Console, two of Narwhal's free tools that already help top companies worldwide to build ambitious Angular apps with modern tools and practices. If you want to build software like Google does, consider working with Narwhal. Learn more at nrwl.io slash realtalk. That's narwhal.io Real talk. And we're back. And one of the things that keeps going in my head is I've written a lot of developer tools myself, Randall, and uh, end user products as well. And I feel like while there's overlap in user experience, I also feel strongly that there are certain experiences developers want that aren't necessarily what our, uh, the average user of an end user of a website would want, for example, and vice versa. So I'm kind of curious when you target developer tooling. What are the main things that you try to, like, give some examples of some problems that you try to solve with developer tooling? Oh, I guess uh, I'll confess in front of all of your viewers, uh, I just use Bootstrap for most of the tools I build. Uh, it's, it's just good enough. Uh, for developer tooling, I find that you don't need to have the perfect color scheme or things like that. You know, d- and being able to sit down with designers is useful, but um, I focus a lot less on making it look good and a lot more on how do I surface the most relevant things so making it useful. So one of the things that I think differentiates developers from regular users is that developers think they're developers and therefore they're looking for extensibility. They're looking for a way to plug it in to other things that they're doing or or extend it themselves. Is that 
something? Is that an appetite you cater to? Yeah, I, I try to do that in my my work. Um, I'm often more uh, more often on the front end. So that's less of a priority. But building out uh, a front end uh, with a solid API rather than like tightly coupling the two means that other people can also talk to your back end service, and that's a great source for like what features do people really want? Because like, you're right, developers are just going to build their own thing. And if people start building their own tools around your tool, that's a great, you know, this is something that someone's taken a lot of time to dedicate to adding this. And if we can put this in the core of our product and then everyone else can use it, that's going to be a huge win all around. Yeah, you know, there's something, recently I've had some experience building some Visual Studio Code extensions and uh, several different pieces I've been tapping into and also reviewing some that other people have written. And one of the things I've found very telling is that some of the code that I've been working with is very extensible. For example, I was working with the Docker extension for VS Code recently, and I found some needs. Like I'm looking at my Docker containers and my images, and it's helpful to see the names and the dates of when they were created. But when they're running, I kind of wanted to know what port they were on. Let me tell you why. I'm running a container, and sometimes I don't even know it's still running because I come back to my computer like a day later. And all of a sudden, I try to use that port for something else. And it just says, hey, port is in use. And I'm looking around going, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) So it's like, what's going on? 10, 15 minutes later, sometimes I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm running this Docker container. I forgot to check it because maybe I wasn't doing Docker at the time. So having a tool that shows the port number in there uh, was was fantastic. And to kind of put a close in this particular story, when I was looking at the, uh, the code, it was super easy to add this kind of information to the extension. And one of the developers actually recently did that for the VS Code team. So things like that, to me, I'm like, you know what? When you can make improvements to technology that help developers do their jobs, one of the things that enables that is by making your code easily extendable as opposed to you know, the close principle, right? So I, I often look at those things. I'm like, you know, if if those kind of iterative things can really help, that in itself, to me, shows as a developer, I want to use tools that make it easy for the community to extend them. Yeah, and it's and it's a challenge to find the right extension points rather than like literate with customization points oh, yeah. that nobody will ever go to. But you're sitting there in the dark trying to come up with that, uh, you know, where those are. And because uh, every, every extension point you create, you've got to maintain and you've got to explain. Otherwise, you might as well not have done it. So it's a it's a real tension that that uh, anybody who writes tooling faces. I, I usually err on the side of throwing in a customization that nobody will ever know about, uh, <laughs> in hopes that someday I'll document it. No, I, I you know that's a terrible instinct, but it's 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 one that I'm vulnerable to. Anyway, but so so that's that's uh, a, a dimension of it. Now, uh, I, you've written a book called "Build Reactive Websites with RxJS," and it's uh, it's on the Pragmatic Bookshelf, which is uh, which is one of my favorite uh, publishers, and uh, because it also aligns with the theme of the show, which is pragmatic. Uh, and, but there are a couple of words in there that I want you to comment on. So one of them is website as opposed to web application. And the other is, what the heck is uh, reactive anyway, and, uh, from your perspective? Sure. Uh, yeah, first off, as, as website, um, that's probably a misnomer. And, you know, web, web application would have uh, worked just as well in there. Because uh, 
what we're talking about in the book is RxJS, and Rx stands for reactive extensions. It's not a specific to any to JavaScript in any sense of the word. Uh, it's actually started in .NET, I think, and you know, it's, there's Rx Java, Rx Python, Rx all over the place. And the idea is that you know, from the start, if you look at the, like the way we teach programming and the way we came up with programming, um, it's this idea that you have all this data at the start and then you process it, and then you you exit. You know, if you look at so many programming tutorials, it's just like, hires a string, manipulate the string, now you're done. And that's not at all how really programming in the real world works, either, you know, anywhere on the stack. Um, with a few exceptions, but really most of us are working in a world where we have events coming in, all kinds of events at any point, uh, and we need to react to those events. So when I say reactive websites, it's not in terms of React, uh, although RxJS works great with React, works great with really every uh, major framework out there. And yeah, yeah, no, React's not a framework. Uh, RxJS brings in the concept of the observable, which is uh, a way of modeling a stream of events sometime in the future, which, you know, the basic example is clicks on a button. So I have a button. I don't have all the clicks. Uh, I don't have a, just an array of click events that will happen as soon as my program runs. I have to wait for them sometime in the future. And we have a whole bunch of ways of handling this, you know, event handlers and, and the event loop and things like that. And what I think RxJS does so just above and beyond anything else is it not only defines that as a kind of top-level thing. This is an observable. It's a stream of events that will happen sometime in the future but adds in just an enormous number, just like I think there's hundreds of different ways to change and manipulate that stream. So you have a click event coming in, uh, then you might want to uh, do some form validation and submit a form and then wait for an AJAX request. And then and it makes all that just so easy. Uh, and I, I first got, got into RxJS actually on the back end doing uh, data processing. And dealing with stream processing. So as events come in, how do we, um, is that a security company? So it's like as spam emails come in, as they're reported, how do we scan them to kind of generate uh, a running tally of, you know, looking for new spam campaigns, for instance. And then I moved to the front end, uh, moved back to the front end, really, and brought all the concepts to there. And I'm like, everything we do on the front end is just reactive. We put a page up and we're waiting for you know, updates from a WebSocket. We're waiting for the user to type something or to click something or a page to load. And once you start modeling everything on the front end and saying, all right, this, this is just a whole bunch of events and use all of the amazing tools that RxJS provides to manipulate those events and kind of cross between them, life just gets a lot simpler. Uh, and so... That's what, that's what the book is about. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Life gets simpler. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have to poke at oh, it. I'm sorry. Oh, John. <laughs> that's fair. So, that's a huge tell, claim. Tell me what, okay, so let's, not to sound like a uh, pessimistic guy here, but let's go both sides of this. Um, what gets simpler and tell me what the trade-offs are. Sure. Um, so, for instance, I think the all-time most useful operator uh, in RxJS, most useful kind of tool uh, is called SwitchMap. Okay, and it's uh, like you, you're probably familiar with Map from Array Map. Just like take every item in the array, apply a function to it, and return a new array with all of the um, new items. 
And map and observable land works the exact same way, except it's unlike an array. It's just things that are coming in over time. So um, in this case, I think the archetype is really just a type ahead. And if you've ever tried to implement a type ahead, you know just how hard it is to, because networks are evil and they hate us and they're always returning things in the wrong order. And so as you type, you're listening, you get a stream of events over time. And then as they come in, switch map can then say, all right, I'm going to send off an Ajax request. For instance, you know, if you're trying to do at in Slack, you want to let at someone and they have a list of suggested names as you type. There's sure. some big companies out there that use Slack and you can't just put the entire list in the client. And as you're typing, you're sending off a request um, and the requests are going to come back in the wrong order. But switch map, what it does is it just says, I'm only paying attention to the most recent request I sent off and I'm just canceling all the others and ignoring the results. And it does that and it holds that state of what the most recent uh, request sent off. And it does that at the library level. So I, as the programmer, just put switch map in, say switch map, send an Ajax request. And then all the code after that doesn't need to worry. Uh, and that's the thing I really like about when you get into an RxJS mindset, so much of that sort of thing is handled at the library level because it has this wonderful list of, of useful tools that you know I, I don't have to think about it. Um, and I can move on to other things. So the flip side of that that John, I think, is pointing at is that that gives you more than 100 plus things that you think you have to learn, each of them uh, a little idiosyncratic. And there are some, some, some minefields out there, mines you can step on, uh, uh, that will um, surprise somebody who isn't steeped you know, for a long time in RxJS, who isn't marinated. Oh, Absolutely. And uh, so it's in that sense that one has to question the easier part. Like, what, like, like what's the alternative, right? You, you know, you could just throw events on there and program it that way and never touch RxJS itself, right? You could do that. What, what makes us, and I'm, gonna, I'm leading to something here, but what, why is that an unsatisfactory um, uh, approach? How does that go wrong? As you might have guessed, Ward has an opinion on RxJS. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, after living with it, I've kind of, I've, you know, I've struggled with the same thing, John. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. like, is this simpler or is it not? Because it's manifestly hard for people who don't live and breathe it. I, I don't see there's any way around that one. I watch people try and pick up what I left behind, and I'm just in tears seeing how they screw it up. So how can this possibly be easier? What's the bright side to this equation? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, you know, the power of RxJS, you really need to kind of buy into it wholesale. Uh, to the more, the more you use it, the more benefit it is. Like back in the, the old days of AngularJS, I remember people trying to just kind of use a little bit of Angular. And it's it just not working for them because you really need everything in so that everything's checked in the digest cycle. Man, it's been a long time since I said digest cycle. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. <laughs> Actually, a quick side note: somebody's telling me the other day I should do a session at some of these conferences on learning and using Angular JS version one because there's so many people out there still using it. Absolutely, and it maybe had like a throwback of wow, all the things that we have we used to have to do and didn't have to touch <laughs> that we use today. Oh yeah. So yeah, like you said, you need to buy into RxJS wholesale. But that's like, why should I do that? I've got a big, I've got a life in front of me. I got so many other things I could do. 
So why this one? Why should I yoke myself to something that's demanding all this time and attention uh, when I could just say, ah, screw it. I'm just going to throw events on there and I'm going to call what I want. God, what's it going to, you know, what's going to repay that effort? And Randall, we both use it, Ward and I. Oh, yeah. I mean, but this is the question that I don't think people have given uh, a winning answer to, but I'm working towards one. Yeah, I think, yeah, just when I give talks about RxJS, you know, I ask, you know, who here has worked with Angular? And just so many people are like, I get Angular. I understand the, you know, Angular, the new Angular. I just don't get RxJS. And... That's something I really tried to focus on in my book because I'm just utterly sick of entirely contrived abstract examples. Uh, I, I learn nothing from them. No, I just it just doesn't work. And when I first started, I was so glad to have like an actual real streaming data processing problem in front of me. And I, you know, the number of times I sat there and I just wrote this convoluted mess of operators trying to get the stream to output what I wanted, and then asked for help, and someone said, "Oh, there's this operator." That you never heard of that where it does exactly what you're wanting to do. Um, it's just like, ah, hair pullingly frustrating. Uh, and that's something that I took with me into the book was, all right, I need to teach all of these operators and I need to teach all these operators in real world scenarios. Um, not just like an abstract map, but like let's build a live up, you know, updating stock graph. Let's build an actual full chat, uh, application only using, um, RxJS, because once you, once you start using it and get into that sort of thing and start thinking that way, um, there's a couple of really cool things that come out of it. First off, um, you have a bunch of, um, and you know, don't want to get too much into functional programming because I know how much it scares people. It still scares me. We have a bunch of pure functions, and you can kind of see as you read from top to bottom how this stream is transformed over time. We have a filter. We have a map. We have uh, all sorts of you know, different things as you go down. You know, we, we do debounce time and things like that. And, you know, as humans, we like to read from top to bottom. And especially with asynchronous code, it doesn't always execute from top to bottom. And each one of those is kind of isolated in its own case. So you can say, all right, this is the filter. It doesn't talk to anything else. This is the filter. It, all, it does everything exclusively by itself. And I just find that refreshing to read after being at so many startups that were just riddled with technical debt. And they're like, oh, yeah, this function calls that function that's way over there and then uses th- these three global variables. And you're just like, ah. With RxJS, it's just natural to write things, executes from top to bottom. You know, one of the things I, I wish people would not do when they're teaching RxJS, I've learned a lot of great ways not to teach RxJS. And I've told you, <laughs> Ward has, and many of us have. You've written a book on it. Yeah. Is this. There are things that make sense once you understand the foundations, but they don't make any sense at all, in my opinion, until you get the foundations of RxJS. And one of those is the marble chart. (laughs) (laughs) There are no marble charts in my book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Just every time I go, it seemed like for the first three years learning RxJS, every time someone would say, hey, well, let's go look at how this operator called, uh, you know, Jimmy Crack Corn, I don't care you know, works. And you look at it and they're like, here's all the marbles flying around on the screen. And you're like, what the heck does that even mean? I think you first have to understand and back up, right? Of Mm -hmm. there are streams. Okay. Well, what is a stream? All right. And then you got to go, why do I even want a stream in the first place? Like I didn't have one before. So what problem is this solving that I currently have? Because that's really the ultimate problem in a lot of technology today is Somebody comes out with a new hot technology, 
they call it the wordbell.js framework. And <laughs> everybody's got to have it. And everyone's using it. And everyone's Twitter saying, oh, man, you're nothing if you're not using this wordbell.js framework. So then people get all peer pressured into it. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. What problem is it solving? And RxJS does solve problems, but it's not how to organize your marbles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I, I started with RxJS version 4, and the docs for that were just awful. Um, and that's something I really appreciate about 5, is the docs are at least better. Uh, but I completely agree with you about marble charts. They're great once you get it, but they do not help you if you don't get it. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you're looking for a better way to track your product and engineering backlog, I know I am, and you want a project management tool that's both powerful and simple to use, try Clubhouse. Designed for software teams, Clubhouse comes with a robust REST API and a host of integration points to fit right into your workflow. Go to clubhouse.io slash realtalkjs and get two months free. So, so I'm sitting here... And I've got this thought in my head that I'm ready to unveil, but, uh, you know, like it seems so, so clear to me as I'm sitting here, but I'm not sure it will, but I'm ready to unveil it if you guys want to hear it. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. Hold on. First, we need a drum roll for you, Ward. <laughs> okay. Cause, cause it's only coming to me after living with it in an application for a while. And I actually think that the, the key phrase that makes RxJS different um, is separation of concerns. So let me let me tell you what I mean. How that is turns into reality. If I because pro- I got to do it by contrast. If if I t- have a, some events and I want to handle them without a, something like RxJS, I write an event handler because that's the only thing I know. That's the alternative is an event handler. You mean like a click handler? Yeah, click handler, or if it's um, something you know, a stream of data coming back from. Uh, HTTP, uh, I'm writing an event, you know, uh, and, and remember we're talking about a stream here, not a one-time, you know, there and back, because promise is just a, an answer to what do I do uh, to an event that hap- that only happens once. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> if I do that, then I've got to put everything I want to know or ever do with that event inside the event handler, because there's no way to abstract. To say, I'll just do part of the job and let something further down the line deal with whatever it wants out of it. Like if I go ask for for data and I um, and I have to manipulate it in some way just to get it out of the JSON and into something I think is going to be useful in my app. Well, I know what you know. I might have one. That's one thing I could do. But now that isn't everything my app wants to do. So do I have to put all of the possibilities into one event handler? That's where I get hurt. And what I end up doing is throwing it into something else, which then has to give up on reactivity and go pull that thing. And that's how things go wrong with event handlers. They go wrong because we can't do everything we want to some some event in one place. And with RxJS, what you do is you say, okay, Here's a little bit of something I want to do with that event. And then I'm just going to, after I've transformed it, I'll pass it along and somebody else can figure out what they want to do with it. So what happens is that these streams start moving from one area of concern to another area of concern to another area of concern. And we have a language for 
moving them along and and indeed mm-hmm. forking them so that the, you know this thing over here which is only interested in the json data well this other thing over here just wants to know that it happened at all and so forth like this so so what 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 i can do is i can parcel out all the things my application might ever come up with that wants to deal with that click or that data that arrived and i can let different parts of my application respond in just the ways they want to because I'm getting a transform stream each time as it moves from one area of programming from one code construct to another and that is the power so whenever anybody sort of teaches these things with RxJS that just show a single flow within a single component uh, and here I mean I don't mean a visual component I just mean chunk a class a chunk of of code they're missing the power because they're doing all the work in one place and if you do all the work in one place you really don't need rxjs let's just face it if you could do all the work in one place in one place in your code you'd never need rxjs at all it would be a total loser it its power is that i can do a little bit and move it along and let somebody else i don't know who you are figure out what that change means to you so I know I went on a long time. I hope to, to, to elaborate on this, but I, to me, that's how RxJS is, pa- is, is paying off. Does, now, does that resonate with anybody here? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Ward. That, that idea of this kind of single unit that you can pass around and I can grab the uh, you know, results of an AJAX request or the latest from a WebSocket and parse it in some way that the rest of my application understands. And then everyone can just listen in and then when, you know, a particular component, uh, it's, you know, de-rendered, and then it cleans up after itself. And it doesn't need to let some global component, you know, let know, hey, I'm done listening, whatever. It just will clean up after itself. I think one of the examples that really kind of proves that rule uh, is back when, you know, Angular 2 was where they're starting to figure out what that was. And they started talking about how everything was going to be observables. And I will confess, uh, sounds strange for a guy who wrote a book on this, but like, I, th- I thought it was a dumb idea. I, th- I said, you know, why are we using observables for this, especially like AJAX requests? Why are we using observables for AJAX requests? They're a single value that happens over time. We have that. It's called a promise. And uh, thankfully, uh, one of the core team members actually got back to me on that one and said, you know, well, here's an example. Uh, and sure, when I'm sitting on my laptop and I'm talking to a server on localhost, uh, everything's fine and dandy all the time, but the real world is different. Uh, and he says, you know, when you're, uh, yeah, when you're when you're on your phone and you're trying, if you're you're doing some sort of you know ride sharing service, which I hear is popular now, and you want to request a car, you're going to make an HTTP request. But you're outside, you're you know, surrounded by buildings. Your cell signals might be a bit off, uh, and if you if you model an HTTP request as just a single request and it fails then it fails. And, and one of the users is just going to sit there and try and refresh. And what you can do if you want a shaky connection with observables is you have one thing that models the HTTP request, uh, and then uh, another thing can just grab that and run retry, which is an, uh, an operator. So all you have to do is say my observable dot retry three. And every, if, if it fails, it'll just, like it says, retry what it says in the, the package three times, and then if that it fails three times in a row, it just says, all right, I'll pass the error along instead of retrying. And so the users are going to sit there and refresh. So back to user experience. 
uh, and if it fails. And if you can do that behind the scenes, then the user will think, oh, everything's up and running, even if they're on a shaky connection. And uh, so that's, uh, I think, a good example of how you can kind of model the, the request in one thing and then just pass it out. Another thing and say, all right, let's do some retry. Let's do some error handling. And then the result of that can be passed to, you know, the component that actually renders the map. So let's take that example uh, and, and see where it goes. So, so you've, you've built a retry into the flow coming from HTTP. And it's, it's failed three times, but it's failed on a connection. All right. You can't do it forever. And you also have to communicate with the user. Right. So this happens in Slack, for example, all the time where, uh, you know, you lost the connection and it wants to have a user experience that tells the user, hey, this is going on. Uh, I'm going to try again in another 60 seconds. You can have force me to try again if you click this button. Mm -hmm. And it essentially disables the rest of Slack for a, a minute. Now, would I want all of that interaction with the user in the same event handler as the thing that tried the retry? Oh, no, that would be awful. <laughs> that's right. But it, without RxJS, solve the problem now, not only of doing the retry, which anybody, we, my first reaction was, hell, you know, I'll just build a retry logic right into my uh, HTTP ha event handler and I'll hide it from everybody that way. But the problem isn't that I, I because of course I could have done that. I don't need RxJS to do that. What I needed was RxJS to do a little of the retry and then give up but have something else somewhere else handle the next piece, which is how do I interact with the user? And even that is can, then gets deconstructed into other um, uh, uh, sort of reactive components. And, and I guess that's what I mean about sort of shifting response, being, uh, having the ability to take something that started with a little failure of the network and shift it around to, the, to, to places in your code that have the right level of responsibility for taking it the next step. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, Jessica Kerr. Uh, Jessica Kerr on Twitter, I think she's Jessitron, uh, is very a great saying, says, we don't write software, we change it. And that's, like you say, just like this thing where you can just continue piling more and more things into this event handler is, you know, you get more requests from other teams. Hey, I'd like this. Hey, I'd like that. Hey, and all of a sudden you just have this huge bloated thing that's impossible to test. It's, you know, difficult to change. If you hook RxJS, you can break that all apart. So, all right, I have the part that handles the HTTP thing and hand, hands it over the retry logic, and then I can have split it off, and I can have the, the map component listen in and the error display component listen in. And if there's an error, the error display component displays an error, and if there isn't, there's new data, the map component can handle it. But I don't need to write, you know, the, the, the splitting off logic is just part of RxJS. That's how it works. Um, yeah, and I think NGRX, for those of you who don't know, which is a state management, a reactive state management um, a library that combines RxJS reactivity stuff with the React pattern, and it does it in an Angular wrapper, but the similar ideas are available for other platforms. Um, that's kind of the operating principle there, it seems to me. It says, okay, we're going to manage the state for you in a reactive way. We're not going to tell you, you know, we're going to get that company data and put it in a company thing. And, oh, we're going to get that order data and stick it in the order collection and the line, you know, products and people and stuff. And we'll do that and we'll let you know when it changes. But then you figure out what that means downstream. 
And so they have reactive coming in because they're having to deal with, with streams of requests that they call actions and they parcel those all out and they put them in the little state cache and then they tell the world, Hey, you know, these things have changed. And then it's up to you to figure out what that means. And so downstream, we, you know, we're listening for these changes and we weave them together in ways that the person who wrote NGRX or, you know, didn't have, had no idea, doesn't even know what's going on in there. Um, that's, or, or wrote that, or even wrote that sort of little caching structure using NGRX, and th- it's this handing things around and saying, "Boy, I sure hope somebody downstream knows what to do with this." But uh, <laughs> but it's not my problem. Um, that's, Isn't that like the de- developer mantra, though? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it isn't my problem. Uh, and you know what? It, it isn't my problem. Is actually, I, you know, I guess that cuts both ways. But I, that's that's the way we should be writing code, right? Because if it's my problem, all if all problems are my problem, and then it's just one big mess. Yeah, it's it's so good to to separate that out. We use our uh, Redux here, and and on, and one of the internal tool I work on, and it's a such a great tool, such a great way of thinking about you know, programming is all the state, and then can only be changed by the defined ways. You've heard the pitch a million times. But the biggest problem with Redux is it only does synchronous changes. Uh, and there's a tool called Redux Observable, which uses RxJS. And there's an example of another stream is like changes to your application. So you can listen in on this stream of whatever event, you know, whatever action you care about, and then say, okay, fire off a HTTP request because the user's changed something that requires a refresh or something like that. Uh, now you can model that coming back and how it goes back in and you can emit another event or do really whatever you want. Like you say, it's just such a pluggable model. So Randall, this has been a really good discussion and we put a lot of the notes. I've been typing in the links to things you're talking about and uh, most recently the Redux Observable. But could you, um, if you had one thing you could share with people if they want to get started with this stuff, like where would you specifically point them? Well, I mean, I'm a bit biased here, but I really tried to write my book not from the perspective of someone who knows everything, because I definitely don't. But really, it's it's almost a journal of me learning RxJS, writing thoughts down, and then hopefully, uh, you know, a lot of people picked it up and said, I, I finally understand. I finally, you know, the, have bridged that gap. Uh, and, and starting from the very basics, building your own observable from scratch, and doing so in a very practical manner. Every chapter is at least one, usually multiple projects, real-world stuff that you can apply to your day job uh, and tackling a lot of the, the problems uh, that RxJS solves. Awesome. And we like to end the show on a note we call Someone to Follow, where we all do a quick shout-out to somebody or someone or something that has inspired us in some way, technology or otherwise. Uh, just a little bit of karma and give back. Ward, who is your Someone to Follow? All right, well, this is really left field, and even it could be seen as somewhat political, but I want to take take it back from that. Wait, sorry, I thought you said Xena. <laughs> you said it's, it could be seen as. Seen okay. as. <laughs> All right, so uh, recently there's been a lot of talk about repar- in the news about reparations for slavery, but it's not. as it turns out it's not just for slavery, it's for the history of everything that that came about through sla- American slavery. Anyway, this this uh, gentleman named Coates wrote a fascinating article explaining what how he sees the problem. Ta Nehesi Coates, and I've read some fiction by him. He's a magnificent writer, and I found this article. To, you know, you don't necessarily have to agree with it, but it sure does shape 
the story in a way that I think might be interesting to people who find the question of reparations interesting. So I'm putting it in the show notes. That's awesome. And Randall, who is your someone to follow or what is your someone to follow? Um, well, I'd like to specifically call out a talk by one of my coworkers named uh, Carly Robinson. Uh, it's about mentoring junior engineers and helping people get started in the industry. Uh, as you could tell from my job history, I used to teach just introductory programming, uh, and I loved it. And I think that's something that we all could learn uh, a lot more about. So there's a talk I'll put in the show notes uh, by her all about that, which is just a great talk. Uh, highly recommend it. And my someone to follow is a thing written by someone, Craig Shoemaker, who we've talked about, I believe, earlier in the shows, uh, in the history of this. He's Craig Shoemaker. He's a smart fellow. Yes. Super smart. Uh, also, very, very kind soul. And he wrote a really good tutorial. It's, a, it's like a two-hour learn module, they call it, on Microsoft Learn, about how to use several different technologies together. What impressed me the most about this is Craig has a very high developer empathy so he understands what it's like to learn something and the things and the questions that you question along the way. Uh, so I really enjoyed going through this. I'll put the link in the show notes for it. I'm not going to spoil kind of all what it does, but it's not technology focused so much as it is. You have a problem, you're trying to solve it, and here's a set of technology you can use to solve it. And it teaches you how to do this with things like serverless functions and some other technology. So check out this link we'll put in the show notes to Craig Shoemaker's Microsoft Learn module. Hey, Randall, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know it took a while for us to schedule and get things on, but really appreciate you sharing your insights. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah, thanks, Randall. And Ward, thanks for doing the intro since we had loud noises going on in my background during the time. <laughs> appreciate all that. And thank you all for listening to Real Talk JavaScript yet another week. And we love listening and hearing your feedback. So catch us up on Twitter and you can catch us every Tuesday morning. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealTalkJS. 